This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Uh, just next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. So, Adi, how are you doing? How was your break? My break is, was uh, very good. We went on vacation to Florida, got a little bit of tan. <laughs> That's it. You do look a little bit tan. That, by the way, I, I'm assuming I can see you over my big stack of notes that I've made You've of made all the stuff stack, that yeah. I've, I've caught. That's caught my eye in sports. Oh man, there's a lot happened. There's since a lot. We've been last in the studio. Absolutely, there's a lot that's happened. And just we just missed one week for the day after Christmas, but we're back here on beautiful in beautiful Huntsman Hall here on the University of Pennsylvania campus. So, Adi, I think. You know, there's lots of things that could have caught your eye in sports. I think we have to talk. Why don't we start with a little bit of the NFL? There's one thing I wanted to ask you a question about, and then there's a thing. I actually have a theme for today, for the morning. It's called statistical coherence. And what I mean by that is I, I actually looked at the Super Bowl odds, and I think they're coherent. And I'll say what I mean by that in a, in oh, a second. Interesting, because that, of course, is a is a term in Bayesian statistics. It's almost foundational. The okay. idea of coherence, I don't know if you know about that. Okay, I'm not sure I do, but we'll okay. get to that in just a second. But I wanted to point out one thing about the four upcoming NFL games mm-hmm. and get re- your reaction to it. So we have Houston, who won the uh, the North, who's playing the, uh, sorry, the Central, who's playing home to Indianapolis. Uh, sorry, the South. Thanks, Matt. The South. <laughs> I always forget the names of these divisions. Uh, they're, they're playing Indianapolis. We have Dallas. I know who won that. I know that's the NFC East. I got that one. Uh, they be, they're hosting Seattle. We've got Baltimore, who's hosting the Chargers. And, of course, we've got the Bears, who are hosting the Eagles. Three of those home teams, they're all favorites. The home teams are all favorites. Well, but there's if, a reason why they're home teams. I understand And that. they have the home field advantage. Yeah, but, so wait that's a, actually but wait a second. Something, something. But if you take away... The classic advantage of home three field. points, right? Correct. Three of those teams are underdogs. So Houston is favored by only two against Indianapolis. Dallas is favored by only one against Seattle. Baltimore's only favored by two and a half against the Chargers. And Chicago's favored by six against the Eagles. I'm not sure in all my years of watching football have I seen there are four home teams. And three of them, if it were played on a neutral field, would actually be the underdog in those games. Does that surprise you at all, given kind of the evidence in the data? And I should say, Houston and Indianapolis basically had the same record. I think Houston won one more game. Dallas and Seattle, I think, had the same record. Baltimore actually had a worse record than the Chargers. You know, the Wolf poor Chargers won 12 games, ended up yeah. as the fifth seed. Chicago and the Eagles is the only one where Chicago won, I guess the Eagles ended up 9-7, and seven, I think the Bears 11-5, and five, so there was a two-game delta. Basically, the teams had the same record, so maybe that's the evidence. Well, the thing about football, and I'm coming to realize this, and we've, we've talked about this a lot, the season is short, and it's short for obvious reasons. It's done to protect the players. I mean, how many football games can you have in a season? It just doesn't often offer enough 
repetition to clearly discern the differences between the teams. So if you think about it, how many teams do we really understand enough information that, that, that are either great or, or horrible? What is there, about four or five on the top would... and about four or five on the bottom? And I think in some level, everybody else is hardly distinguishable. Yeah, so that's actually part of the stati- – it's a perfect lead-in to the statistical coherence uh, argument I wanted to make. So just to give you an example, you talked about four teams at the top. I know this isn't meant to be a quiz, but it's going to quiz you in some way. If I had to quiz you right now, which four teams almost have to have the best odds to win the Super Bowl? Which four teams does it have to be? Forget the names of the teams. Which four teams does it have to be given the structure of the NFL playoffs? Well, it has to be the teams that have the buys, so without a question. All right. Yeah. So that was the first thing I looked at. Yeah. Were the Super Bowl odds, and by the way, you'll correct me in, at, when I'm done with my use of coherence. Okay. But the first thing is, I looked, are the four teams with the best odds the ones that are playing one less game? So they got that right. The Saints are the top, then the Chiefs, then the Rams, then the Patriots. So the first thing I looked at is, are they coherent in that one less game by definition, has right. to give you better odds. The second thing I looked at was, did they at least have, when they went Saints, Chiefs, Rams, Patriots, did they have one team from each conference? Mm-hmm. They got that they right. Okay. Did they have them in order of regular season record? It turns out, while that didn't have to match up, it did it match okay. up. Did it turn out that the bottom of it has the worst playoff team, by regular season record and strength, the Eagles. The Eagles are all the way at the bottom. And now, when you say this, is this is based on which which probabilities, which which odds? Where do they come from? Okay, so you mean the Eagles being at the bottom? Yes, because uh, interestingly enough, I mean, it's not it's not clear to me that that say five thirty eight has the same probability. Well, right. So we could we could debate on that. I was saying based on regular season record. Okay, regular and, season record. And, yeah, based on regular season. Very simple. So, for example, the according to five thirty eight, the Eagles are. Certainly underdogs to make it to the end. I mean, they have many more games against much better teams. But if you compare them, say, against Dallas, now Dallas has an easier road to the next round than the Eagles do. But if conditional on the da- Dallas playing in the next game, which assuming they would play against New Orleans, I think is... Well, no, 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 but let's be clear. Yeah. If the Eagles win, they definitely play New Orleans. So they're locked in. So that's let's be clear about that. The Eagles are the sixth seed. That's right. If the Eagles win, they play the top seeded team left, which is the Saints. That's right. So if Dallas win, if it goes according to chalk, mm-hmm. one meaning three beats six. That's right. Four beats five. Dallas is four. They play the Saints. So actually, there's no difference into whom their second round opponent is likely to be, whichever one of the two of them advances or both of them advance. If the Eagles win, they have to play the Saints. There's no, right. there's no there's uncertainty, no, no uncertainty in that. Exactly. The only reason Dallas wouldn't play the Saints is if the uh, Seahawks beat um, if the Seahawks beat uh, if Seahawks, oh, Seahawks beat Dallas. Yeah, if Seahawks beat Dallas. So if Dallas wins and the Eagles win, Eagles play the Saints. Dallas would play the Rams. The Dallas play the Rams. I see. Oh, so that's why the D- Dallas, because Dallas is a tougher road, because they, the Rams, I think, are considered better than the Saints, or, or what, no, what do you think? No, not at no, all? No, no. Because the, if you look at the the, the chart by EL, ELO, uh, the ELO, shouldn't call it ELO, right. that's a rock band. Which <laughs> I just went to see recently, <laughs> which really? was one of the great concerts of all time. E- ELO is named after a person. It's a, it's a method of ranking teams right. that, that uh, 530 uses. They actually give, um, I think they give the conditional on the Eagles making it through that next round, I think they give a little bit higher probability to them than Dallas. That is extraordinarily surprising to me. Um, it's also interesting because um, it's interesting because 
I don't know how much weight you put on this. So, you know, the Eagles did play New Orleans this year. Yes. They did. Mm-hmm. I, Matt's going to correct me the exact score. The number that sticks in my mind is 48 for New Orleans, 7 for the Eagles. Yes, something it was horrible. In, something horrible in that up. range. Is that worth anything? Like, does that, let me just ask you. Let's imagine we just took an ELO-like model, which is a paired comparison model. Each team has That a, doesn't use um, margin of victory. No, no. Right. So it's purely win-loss comparison model. Do you adjust that at all for the fact that the Eagles and the Saints did play? The Saints, by the way, I mean, I, I don't know if this is true. They're roughly undefeated in the Sean Payton era at home in the playoffs. Like, they've, like, never lost. If they've lost, they're, like, 10-1 and one or something. How do you do you make any adjustment for that? Or you say, well, that's just small samples. Yeah, the Eagles just happen to have a bad day. I mean, you have to put something on that. You you would argue, of course, you have to put something on it. The question is how much, and that's the that's the you know the the utility of a statistician. Do we shrink all the way back to nothing, as in treating it like any win is any win? That's what we mean by shrinking back to the mean, and or do we actually give some value on it? I don't think that. First of all, the the, the gap is so large that we just curtail it or we truncate it at a certain number. I would probably add a little bit of value there. Somehow the matchup between between those two teams is particularly imbalanced. Um, in other words, we give Philadelphia a better chance against other teams than, than, than I guess, New Orleans. But I wouldn't put much on it. So how much, I, I'm not going to use the word momentum, I'll use the word non-stationarity, but notice our fans here on Wharton Moneyball, I'm, I'm really meaning momentum, I'm just trying to say in a you way are. that Adi doesn't absolutely <laughs> shish kebab me in the first year and t- first well, you show know what? in 2019. When we have Jeremy Lin on later this afternoon, later this in this morning, we have to ask him about momentum from oh, the player's we're perspective. De- we're definitely going to ask him. And again, if you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for us here on Wharton Moneyball, please join us. This is one, at one eight four four wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. And again, this is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm here with my co-host and friend this morning, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. So let me ask you a question about, did you like, and then you'll correct me now, my use of the term coherence in the sense of it was coherent in that teams that are flipping less coins were at the top. Among those teams, it was according to, in this case, regular season record. We could debate that because every win's not the same. They had it in that there was the right number of teams from each conference. They had it in terms of, in some sense, um, the the best of the non-winning teams was the Chargers in terms of their odds. Because the Chargers, let's forget that they didn't win their division. They did go 12-4. and four. I considered that a, a semi... A, I use the word coherence. You'll correct me. It's a coherent set of odds because... It, it goes along with the the data and the inference that we would make given the structure and the outcomes. Well, uh, for those of you who can't see me, I'm nodding my head. Um, that is exactly what coherence means. In fact, just to br- wrap it, you know, give it some context. For for many for centuries, no one really understood what a probability was, and even to this day, what exactly is a probability? Uh, what is actually randomness? Yeah, we could say long so, run frequency, but what that's if, you right. know, the yeah. event never happens? Well, that's that's true. Long run frequency doesn't mean anything in the real world because events don't aren't really don't ever get to get duplicated. I mean, no football game ever gets gets to be replayed. So every game, every every instance we look at is a one-off event, and therefore you have to appeal to what we call belief systems. And for many, many years, I mean, for hundreds of years, that's that was the only idea that, that girded probability, the beliefs. And so so traditionally, and, and from the classic philosophical point, point of view for probability, coherent belief systems are ones that obey the laws of probability that we know of today, the ones that match frequency. So coherent beliefs 
follow the, the, the rules that you're essentially outlining for the odds for, for NFL football. Yeah, what, what I always say to most of our students, since we're a show not only about sports, but statistics and business, I say to my students, like when I grade their assignments, you can assume, and by the way, when I was editor of a journal and I was looking at theory papers, what I would read them and say, look, I can disagree with your assumptions, but that's a subjective opinion. Like you assume the marketing world's going to behave like this. I assume it's, it's fine. But if your inference is coherent with your assumptions, well, then at least we're talking about the same thing. And that's the thing I always look for when I evaluate academic work. Is the work coherent? I can disagree with the assumptions of the work. Like, you fit this model. I think it should be that one. You made this independence assumption. I don't believe it. But to me, coherence is such an important statistical principle. But it's also, you know, one of the things we create models that are complicated. And they, if you dig into them, you can often find attributes that are incoherent in odd ways. And they don't, for example, follow monotonicity, which means that stronger teams say should do better. And they have all these odd features. And as we move toward, away from classical statistical models that, are, that, that, that employ the, these rigorously, these, these qualities and attributes in the model, things like regression, linear regression, logistic regression, as we move towards artificial intelligence or machine learning based techniques, these models can actually lack the coherence that you describe and we don't have don't have the tools to even check it so i have a question for you about that but before just to just to reiterate a couple things i've talked about thanks to our producer matt datz who always puts great things up on the screen for me thanks matt you're off to a great start in 2019 Uh, i was correct the saints have never lost at home in the playoffs under sean payton now it's five and oh they're three and five on the road by the way which probably is not that inconsistent with many teams in other words I'm not saying 5-0, and oh, never been beaten. But, I mean, most teams are probably much stronger at home during the playoffs as opposed to the road in the playoffs. I mean, Matt, which maybe is, you could put up Bill Belichick's which, numbers by the way, on the road. Which, by the way, uh, 530 had just read an article about why. Why is there such an enormous home field advantage? And, and uh, You're the better team? Uh, well, no, after absolutely. In, in the playoffs, but after conditioning on you're the better team, there seems to be an enormous home field advantage in NFL, and it's not easy to articulate why. And many people have talked about this. Referee, the referee is call. not enough to explain it, not even close. Wow. So that, that's, so, that's actually what I, so what I also did is I tried to infer, I tried to infer the Eagles' odds of winning each game. Okay. From their odds. And here, so here's what I from, did. From the which Eagle, odds? Well, from... I'll tell you. So the Eagles right now are plus 3,000. You mean to win the Super Bowl? To win the Super Bowl. Which puts them at about 2 or 3%. Right. So it's four games. Which I think is high. I agree with that. <laughs> but there's four games, obviously, That's they would right. have yeah. to win. Yeah. So I said, let's pretend for the moment 50-50? That... <laughs> no. So 50-50 doesn't get you there. No. Because 50-50 is one sixteen. That's right. That's so right. it's lower. Oh, much? So I tried. To... Well, it's not much lower. Surprising. Well, you remember those prop... those odds are high because the, the Vegas has set them to make money. I know, but I, I just use them as okay. they are. Right. It turns out there's an inferred probability of around 43%. Like, if you assume four coin tosses at 43%, that essentially gets you to that number. And, you know, I started to think about that. Because, again, I was in my coherent mode yesterday when I was doing this. I don't think that's that wrong. Like, I, you know, if you told me the Eagles were basically 60-40 underdogs, I think they're more than 60-40 underdogs. Well, against, this if opening they play game, the they're about 60-40 in, the, in, the, in this first game against the By Bears. the betting line. By the betting line. Yeah, they'll be much and less. And they're going to be much less much, going forward. Much, less. So th- it just gives you a sense. I mean, that 3% that's implied by the 3,000 to, 3, to 100, that's the, way, right. that's the way they rate it. 30 to 1, right. 30 to 1 is, is, I think, way too high. I mean, if you actually figure out a, an actual sharp line based on, say, Massey Peabody ratings or, or, or ELO ratings, I think it probably puts the, the Eagles' chances more like 1% rather than 3%. 
Well, what's interesting about that is, so let's think about that. There are 12 teams left in football, right? That's right. Okay. So the average, so it's actually, this, you love talking about, we, we've talked about this on the show a lot, absolute probability versus odds. So what you're saying is they essentially have one-eighth the chance of the average team left in the playoffs, if you believe at 1%, because the average right. team has one-twelfth. Right. So that's saying 8.3%. Yep. That's massive. I mean, that's, that's right. a massive well, odds ratio of their chances versus the well, average team. First of all, they're not the same because they don't all have – some of them have buy. So you can't – even by your own metric, you recognize that there's, that's true. there's four teams that have much higher probability just to start with. Well, that's true. And that already puts them at about a half the disadvantage. So that gets okay. you from eight to four. Bang. Uh, all right. On the buy. That's true. That's, so, that's a big effect. So I caught you on that one. But but nevertheless, yes, the rest comes from the fact that they're an underdog. They're they're just not as good as about four teams I think we can we can list immediately. Let's go back and go do it right now. Which teams are clearly much better than the Eagles? Well, clearly better. Well starting you, with New Orleans. Well, I mean again, the four top rated teams, which the Eagles would be underdogs against, certainly in any of those games, would be the Saints, the Chiefs, the Rams, and the Patriots. You I got mean, it. They're the four top teams. Yep. They're the four top teams in and, football. And, and, and the Eagles can't be better than 60-40 against any four of those, any of those teams, and I would guess less. Less. I, I would say considerably less. And I, But I think you would also agree, this is something you brought up about, this is the way ranking systems tend to work. They work well. Not, they work well. They always work well. There's more information at the extremes. There's a lot of flatness and uncertainty in the middle. I would, if I would not, it would not shock you or me if the Eagles beat the Bears. Nope, it would. And by the way, the Bears are the fifth ranked team. That's right. It would not shock you if the Eagles beat the Cowboys. Not at all. It would not shock you if they beat the Seahawks. So I'm saying now, would it shock? By the way, just to remind you, they just played the Rams two weeks ago and beat them. In Los Angeles. That's right. And beat them. And so a game that the, mattered. And a game, oh, it, it really mattered. <laughs> yes. It really mattered. So I would say for me, the only thing that would shock me, it would shock me, and maybe Matt can put up a poll here on, on at W Moneyball, if the Eagles beat the Bears, I, I would be shocked if they went into New Orleans and won that game. Yes, that would be a shocking win. But listen, here I'm going to I'm going to turn our attention to a statistical question that has bothered me, and I've, we brought it up. I've brought it up occasionally. How many games does Nick Foles have to perform like a superstar before we throw out the idea that we don't have enough data about him? Well, now, I'm sounding like a momentum was, guy. No, no, I don't know what I'm sounding next, like. That was, That's your next question. That was well, literally the next thing well, I had here, written and because down. Because this is the issue. The, one of the reasons why we don't think that much of Philadelphia is that they struggled with what they struggled through the first three quarters of the season with with the quarterback whom they considered to be the better quarterback. Now we bring in the weaker backup. And all of a sudden, they've, they've catapulted themselves. Once again, we saw this last year. Now, last year, he fumbled his way. He didn't fumble his way, but he, he mumbled or bumbled his way into the playoffs and then played like a superstar going to the end. So what is the deal with Nick Foles? Is he below average or is he a superstar? And how do we work that in? Because if you work at him as a superstar, the Eagles look much better. Well, we're going to talk about here, that here on Wharton Moneyball. We are here on Sirius XM Business Radio 132, powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. I'm here with my co-host, professor of statistics. Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Maybe you have an opinion on Nick Foles, the Eagles' chances, the NFL playoffs. Look, something happens with Nick Foles where 
actually, if you look at his regular season statistics, they're bad, except for 2013. Right. And by the way, people always forget Nick Foles had maybe the greatest season of any quarterback in the history of the NFL. 27 touchdowns and two interceptions. Right. And I think he completed well over 70% of his passes that season. So people want to make it seem like he's never had a good game. He's uh, never had good games before the last two years. Actually, Nick nope. Foles, it's it's actually not true. Um, I actually but think— But he had incredibly bad seasons in, I guess, 14, 15. Is that, those were the years he, he was— That's correct. You know, this guy is, is, is mysterious to us. I mean, talk about volatility. You just described, I, have, I hadn't had it heard in, described in those terms, but I'll accept that. 2013, one of, if not the best quarterback season in the history of NFL. That's correct. I think he had the game um, last season, or two weeks ago, was the game, was the, considered the best game by an Eagles quarterback ever. Well, let's also say in the, in the game he just played against the Redskins, he tied the NFL record for the most consecutive completed right, passes in a row. Exactly. 25 in a row. So this and is, he has the greatest game ever played. He, I think he, he holds the record. He threw seven touchdown passes in a right. game, and I'm pretty sure that was in the season where he threw 27 20, touchdowns. Maybe so here, against the Oakland Raiders so, or something. So it's interesting because when, when, when Wentz went down, Massey Peabody took away about three and a half points from the Eagles. In terms of their rating, can you give? Can you translate for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball what that means? In terms of like odds, like if they were playing against, let's say, it was so that's bigger than the home field advantage, just to give you a sense, which is about three points, and it, it takes a, a on a neutral field, even teams are fifty percent, and a three and a half point favorite goes to about fifty eight percent. So fifty eight to to forty to forty two went from fifty fifty to fifty eight just by re- extracting Wentz and replacing him with Foles. If you if you accept that as not only false but in reverse, that he's three and a half points better than Wentz, all of a sudden, everything changes. If you carry them through the the, the playoff odds all the way to the end, they're no longer one percent. They really are much higher. Maybe not maybe not the 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 four uh, percent, which is what they would be if they had to play all these games, but close to it. So when you think about the Eagles, I think they're probably the most uncertain of all the teams because we don't really know what to make of Nick, well, Nick Foles. Well, let me ask you a question. If you know, we're also fans here. We're obviously statisticians. That's our. That's who we are. But we're also fans. If Nick, if uh, Carson Wentz were healthy right now, based on what you've seen, who would you start? Oh God, I wish I could answer that question. As a really, I'm not a football coach. Purely on the numbers. This is this is the classic. You've really just you've hit it. You you threw one down the middle, and you've asked me to answer it. The issue is, what do we make of the recent data versus the historical data of his career and his volatility? So, I would probably have to ask but, answer the but question before you answer. Yeah, let me ask you a question. Let's let's let's. I'm on a condition on a statement, and then reframe. I'm not going to reframe. I ask you the same question again. Let's assume for the moment that either of these quarterbacks can beat the Bears. Mm-hmm. You're going up against the Saints. You want high variance. That's right. Who would you rather have? Well, when you put it that way. Well, that's why, I, that's why is, I'm well, sitting in this there, seat and I'm trying to ask you interesting okay, there, there's questions. There's two questions. And so if I wanted high variance, because and the, the argument that, that, that you're making is that in order to beat the better team, you have to take chances. And this is hugely important for life. That's I mean, exactly this is a, what I'm saying. A, we talk about business applications, and this is it. If you're an underdog, the only way you're, gonna, you're going to have a decent shot of beating the, the better team is by taking chances. So by that measure, you've got to go with the high variance 
pick, which is Nick Foles. The other argument is that not only is he high variance, but we're in a hot, the good regime and that we have enough data to it's indicate that we are here. So the idea behind Nick Foles is he's, he's, a, he's a non-stationary quarterback rolling between bad and good, but he doesn't go on an arbitrary um, back and forth uh, independent way between those two states, those regimes. He actually stays in them for a while and then he leaves. So from the point of view of the Philadelphia Eagles' future, Wentz is the guy because I think his mean is higher and he's, he doesn't have this flip-floppy behavior. But if you're talking about now, if we're confident that he's in that high regime, you got to go with Foles. So there's two arguments. Well, what's really great also about, your, about what you just said is having someone that goes hot-cold could be good. But as you said, what's important is also that What's the stay time That's in right. the hot state? Yeah. And matter of fact, probably one of the reasons, matter of fact, many people might believe it's hard to detect the hot hand is, you're right, maybe I, we all agree you do get hot. But if you get hot for such short periods of time, it's just going to be hard to detect. Right. It, you know, that's absolutely true. So we actually, Adi, it's 2019. We're a call-in show. We have our first caller of 2019, and actually a return caller for 2019. So we have Margie from Mississippi. Margie, this is Eric Bradlow. I'm here on Wharton Moneyball with my co-host, Adi Weiner. What, what can we answer for you? First call of 2019. Hey, Eric and Adi. Um, good. Um, happy New Year to you. Good to be on the show. Um, what I wanted to ask was, I'm obviously a New Orleans Saints fan as well, and um during this playoffs coming up with a super dome field advantage, um, does it actually give the Saints more than a three-point field advantage coming into that kind of situation? Uh, well, what are your thoughts on that um, in terms of the Superdome and its true um, dome field advantage for the playoffs? Well, Marjorie, first of all, thanks for your question. Adi, I think you've actually looked at this a little bit about yeah. how much does home field advantage vary across teams. It does. So, so what do you what have you what so, do we know? So, a couple a couple of things we know. First of all, we're not exactly sure where it comes from. Um, there's a piece that does come from the referees in the sense that the referees are, are uh, generous towards the home team because possibly because of the of the crowds. They don't seem to have an effect on the players, but they do have an effect on the referees, and that wouldn't make a superdome effect. But I think the predominant reason why the home team does better. And in football, it's about a 58 to six, nearly 60% advantage. And, and I think for the New Orleans, it's even higher. I think it has to do with familiarity. So what does that mean? Whenever you're in a place that you know well, and in a, of course, football fields are all the same. So one can argue that, um, that they're all the same, that you should know them all equally. But that's actually not true. They're not all the same. Um, they have lots of features that make them different. And, and maybe we should talk to a player and, and have them actually tell us what they think they are. The home field advantage is most pronounced in, in radically different uh, locations, and that's Colorado. Colorado, where the familiarity not only extends to the field itself, but also to the, the, the atmosphere. And so literally every, the atmosphere. In, in every sport. You the, mean literally the I literally atmosphere, mean the, the air. Atmosphere. You I mean the, the air. You know, Mile I mean, High Stadium. Exactly. And in, so, so every single team, and so in football, Denver is, is the Colorado team. In baseball, it's the Rockies. And, and that, that includes basketball as well. Every single team, in every single sport, the home field advantage is largest for the Colorado team. But the, the Superdome advantage is there, too, because I think it's the most, you know, these domes are the more radically different um, environment. So the playing surface and, and the playing surface. So the familiarity for the home team is is larger there. So I give them I give them a, a slightly bigger advantage there. I would agree. What's also interesting from Argy's question as well is though, but let's also put effect size into this. Like 
none of us would say, I think you would agree with this, let's assume the average home field advantage is three points. There's no way the Saints would be six points. Like no. That would be, so if we're talking about an, an, a boost, Four. maybe it's, right. So we're talking about one point. Right. So yes, it's bigger, but it's not something that's going to radically change. Like maybe maybe they're 60-40 instead of 58-42. That's right. But it's not anywhere where, wow, they're just by, you know, they're 80-20 and others are 60-40. It's not of that magnitude. It's not of that. Although, interestingly enough, um, uh, Colorado Rockies have about a 57% home field advantage. And the across baseball all around, it's about 52.5. So that is the one sport, at least, it clearly makes a difference. And it's odd that, of course, that, that, that Colorado doesn't seem to compete for the playoffs every year because they have such an enormous advantage at home. But it seems to be almost exactly balanced by a disadvantage on the road. And no one can quite understand why that's the case. They wow. just they, they do worse than you'd expect them. I mean, they just don't do well on the road. So that's um, their stati- hitters don't that's do well. statistically more interesting to me than them doing better at home. Because, you know, you'd say, wow, they could just play 500 on the road that's right. and play 650, 700 ball at home. They'd be a contender every single they, season. They don't do 600 uh, on the road. I mean, if, even, but 570 is a good advantage. So if they put together a decent team... Um, they should be able to compete. Now, last year they did have a team that actually pre- they prepared. They did play better on the road than than had ever seen before. Well, so that's. Let me ask you. Anything else caught your eye in the NFL? Any other things? I have a whole thing about coaching I want to talk to you about in the NFL, but we'll get to that maybe in our last half hour, or we'll get to it with our next guest as well. But anything else caught your eye about the structure of the NFL playoffs? Anything? How about the way the Eagles got in? Did you think the Eagles were going to get in? Did you think the Vikings were going to? Think the Bears were? Well, by the way, just to give you a stat that. I just read recently. So I'll tell you why I was not as worried. Maybe we could put some weight on this or not. So Kirk Cousins, who's the starting quarterback now for the Vikings, who, you know, they lost to the Bears at home when Mm -hmm. they, you know, it was winner get in. And the Bears, interestingly enough, were playing hard in the beginning, but it was clear that the Rams had blown out the Niners and and that the game didn't matter to the Bears at all. And I thought that they would just walk away from it and let the, the Vikings win, but they didn't. Well, two things are interesting about that. So one stat I'll tell you. So Kirk Cousins, in his career, has played 28, I'll ask you just to guess, he's played 28 games in his career against teams with a winning record. What do you think his record is in those games? Uh, 14 and 14. Good guess. That's absolutely a good guess. It's what I would guess. 4 and 24. Oh my. And by the way, this is a quarterback, Matt can look up the exact numbers, they basically just gave him four years and $100 million, and he's 4 and 24 against teams with winning records. Now, that's we can do our one sample proportion test. That's going to diverge from fifty fifty. That's one issue. The second issue is let's think about the mentality of the Bears in that game. So that, let, me make, let me make sure that's clear. That's a winning record at the time of the game, not looking backwards after the end of the season, that's, that's, because that would bias the that result badly. That's a, it's a great question. Yeah. I I see this. Matt put it on the screen. I read this stat. Yeah. I think it's at the time of the game. Okay. I think. But that's a great question. It should almost have to be. Because it's one of the, this is a, a classic problem in statistical measurement and analysis of performance is to not recognize that you're biasing your results by looking ahead into the future. Yeah, I'm hoping it's at the time okay. of the game. <laughs> the second thing was, if the Vi- Bears had beaten the Vikings, sorry, if the Vikings had beaten the Bears in that game and made the playoffs, do you know who the Vikings would have played the next week? I don't know. The Bears. The Bears. <laughs> so that was interesting. Like... Let's imagine a scenario where the Bears are winning, I'm making it up, 24-10 to 10, with five minutes left, and they're like, this team stinks. 
Let's let them win this game. (laughs) The Eagles are the defending Super Bowl champions with a hot quarterback in Nick Foles. We now know we can win this game, and this game is now meaningless to us because we know the Rams won. Let's let them put in a couple of touchdowns, win the game. We play them again next week, except it's in our stadium versus theirs. I was wondering if there was going to be a point in the game. Where they would realize this. I think you're right, quite honestly, that this this was in some measure a bad strategic move to win the game. But players, athletes play to win. They don't play I know, to lose. I know. And it's impossible to break that. And there's no reason why you really want to. It's it's like asking, you know, there's a classic, it's like asking the scorpion to be something different than what they are. Well, either way, <laughs> we have to be who we are here on Wharton Moneyball as well. So this has been the first quarter of 2019. We've got three more quarters to go for the show. Please join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. We're here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host and friend and Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, just like we had a caller in the first half hour, it's easy to do. Just call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We love answering email questions as well throughout the week. We can we answer them live here on the show, but we also answer them also through Twitter on at WMoneyBall. So, Adi... We actually have a very, in some sense, interesting guest joining very us here. Very interesting guest. Very interesting guest joining one us. One of my favorites. One of our favorite. <laughs> well, he's normally not a guest. Uh, but, of course, it's our co-host and friend, uh, practice professor, professor of operations, information, decisions here at the Wharton School, and, of course, the primary host of Wharton Moneyball, Cade Massey. So, Cade, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks, guys. Happy New Year to you. Where are you calling from, Cade? <laughs> from the farm. Uh, from the farm. All right. So, excellent. All right. So, look, Cade, I, you look. It's your time. We have to look. Normally, I might start with the NFL because Adi and I have been talking about the NFL, but we got to start with college football. And why not, look, it's your time. Let's talk about Texas, Georgia. Come on, let's get right to <laughs> Did it. Did you watch the game last night? Because I went to bed before it ended. Yeah, but tell us. I felt bad about that. Tell us about both the Texas Georgia game, and why don't you tell us in general what's caught your eye in college football? Well, uh, you're a very gracious host. I appreciate that. We got back from Texas last night just in time to unload the car, build a fire, and sit down in front of the TV for the kickoff. So it was a it was a fun night. Did not expect it to go that way. Ready to be surprised, but did not expect it to go that way. Super impressed with what Tom Herman and the team did. Um, obviously, a very good Georgia team. Um, but I don't think they were quite as motivated as Texas was. But it was impressive to see, you know, a Big 12 team going in just out physical, an SEC team. It was clearly Big 12 number two, I guess SEC number two, and so it was a nice Match up in that way, and it was a big, big win for the Texas program. Well, can you talk about that? Can you talk about what this does for Texas going forward? Besides the fact that you know it makes them maybe maybe the whole system believe in the coach even more, which is obviously a big thing. But like, do you have any sense of whether it'll help recruiting? Like, you know, we're back on the map. I mean, we've beaten. I mean, no one can argue. Matter of fact, after seeing Notre Dame's performance, we even have a greater argument that Georgia or Ohio State should have been that fourth team. But how much do you yeah. think this helps Texas going forward and say, look, we're going to be big-time college football now again. you got to join us. Yeah, the recruiting thing is huge. Texas's biggest recruiting rivals are Oklahoma and A&M, and then to the left extent, LSU, just geographically. A&M's already in the Southeast Conference. Oklahoma's been playing the playoff the last two years, and, and they showed up really nicely against Georgia last year, less so this year against Alabama. But they, you have to have some kind of 
SEC credentials. You have to, you know, stand toe to toe with them in the field or play in that conference these days if you want to recruit at the very highest level. Texas inspired us to do that, so they needed to have that kind of they needed to have that kind of notch in their belt. They really did, um, and then to do it in the way they did. I mean, you know. SEC, even when they don't win games, they like to think that they're the biggest and the baddest and the most physical, and that was not the case last night. So what's interesting about that, Adi, is that one of the things that I always find interesting when one kind of watches a game is, you know, I've always said, you you probably remember, I haven't said this for about a year on Wharton Moneyball, is I can predict the outcome of a game after watching the first series or two. (laughs) You haven't said it in a while. But I I have said it many times. You have. You haven't tested it. But I know. (laughs) All right. But what I start to look for in a game is exactly what Kate is talking about, which is the physicality in the game, which is... What happens in the trenches on that first play or two? Is it, you know, are we scoring on trick plays? Are we scoring on this? Because, like, when I watch, Kate, I'd love your opinion on this. I don't know if you watched any of the LSU um, UCF game yesterday, but even though the score was 14 to 3 at the start of that game in UCF's favor, obviously one was on a pick six. Um, you, LSU seemed the more physical team in that game. And I was like, wow, you know, if, if UCF wins the game, It'll be a surprise. What what did you, what do you think? Would, did you watch any of that game, and did the results surprise you at all? No, I was I was traveling yesterday, um, so I didn't get to see it. I, I I only learned later that they were down so much early. You know, you and I have been on opposite sides of the UCF things for a while. You've got your Northern Florida loyalties kicking in, and I've just never quite believed in them based on our numbers. So I wasn't surprised to see the final outcome. I was surprised to see such a high scoring game. Did not expect that. Well, I have to admit, as you know, this is again, you're, this is the classic bias I bring to everything. I just wish Mackenzie Milton had played in that game because I yeah, think the right. guy's last name is Mac. He was terrible yesterday, and I mean, if if we had if UCF we if UCF had a good quarterback in there, I think that I mean the game already was somewhat competitive. Um, yeah, I think the game would have been very very competitive. You know, I, I'm I'm no expert in college football, as you know, Cade, but I've been doing some research into the recruiting and UCF is a standout in compared to the the major conferences they they don't get anybody who who's of any national prominence in high school to play for them nobody i mean it's just ridiculous and so what they're able to do given what they're able to collect at least is is remarkable i mean if you think about it in terms of residual and not an actual performance in other words how much better do they perform on the field given the talent or the reported talent anyway of of what they who they're able to recruit is maybe the largest in the nation what do you think of that? Well, um, I, they clearly have been outperforming. I mean, just compared to other Group of Five schools alone, you know, forget the uh, divide across Group of Five, Power Five. Mm-hmm. They're clearly the top performing. So that alone would say that they're doing better. Now they're in Florida, and, and the number one factor in recruiting is is geography. So they're they're in a they're in a talent rich area for recruiting, and so they probably do better than the Memphises of the world who are some of their group of five rivals. My main question to you on that, Audie, is what's the dependent variable? When you say they're outperforming, by what measure well, are I mean, you saying that? So I guess I'm saying in the sense that they played LSU, they played Auburn last year, they beat Auburn, I think, in the, in the playoffs. In the, they did, in the bowl, they beat and, Auburn last and they, year. And, and as, as Eric has championed, if, they, if, their, major, if their actual quarterback uh, for the season was in, they, they might have beaten LSU. But whatever you want to call it, they played them very strong, and they were totally competitive. And even Massey Peabody had them down, what, we uh, not even a touchdown by ratings, I think. So whatever well, they're doing, that's, what's that? That's... But that's that's kind of where I go. The 
a, a single game. You know, it's a, it's a good rhetoric. It's good off season. You know, bragging rights to say they beat Auburn last year in the bowl, but it's just a game. If you, you want to, if, you, if you're, I know you're going to do this in some way, but you want to consider like what's their. We don't observe true strength, but the best you can say for what your best approximation of their true strength. So we have UCF. You know, I'm biased. I believe in the Massey Peabody numbers. But you go look, go to ESPN's FBI. Where does ESPN have UCF in their FBI? They're going to be about 20 or 21. And so that's probably outperforming it is. their recruiting rankings. But it's not like you can't say they're undefeated and they beat Auburn in the bowl and therefore they're outperforming their recruiting rankings. No, but the fact that they're actually in there, at least year after year, at least for as far as I can tell, at least cu- last couple of years, is in some level. I mean, I guess we have to to make it more formal. But I think even Massey Peabody's rating of being twentieth in the nation, I think, given where they are in their recruiting, I don't think they for pick sure. up a, a, a they don't even pick up a four star recruit, maybe not even a three star recruit. Okay, how, how much stock um, hey, do you put in this? Uh, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit. How much stock do you put into the what I call the one game scenario, which is essentially what LSU said after the game, which is that they give them credit, they seem very well coached. UCF is a fast team, but they're not a physical team. And so they basically, you know, it would be great to have fast, big athletes, and UCF has fast, smaller athletes. And that could be work for one game scenario. But let's, you know, as LSU said, let's see them come play in the SEC and let's see how they do over a 12 game season. Do you, do you, not a scenario, it's a fact. Do you buy into that? And, and how much weight do you put in that? Like if they played LSU's schedule, do you think they even go 500? No, I don't. I, I well, maybe. I mean, but there are a lot of really good teams in the SEC West that barely go 500. You know, talk to Mississippi State, talk to Auburn, talk to A&M years before this one. I mean, that's a really tough division. So they, I don't think it would be even a. I don't think it's a slight to say they wouldn't go 500. But I think the point is is well taken. One game, anything can happen in one game. You guys know that better than anybody. And these bowl games are such a weird combination of motivation and players sitting out. I mean, this is the story on TV, but it's one of those cases where the stories actually match reality. It's just a mix of really weird stuff, and it doesn't really mean as much as it, the weight it's going to carry in the offseason. I mean, anything can happen in these bowl games. Heck, we just came through a season where a lot of weird things did happen. So how did you, besides, we've talked about two of the games so far, obviously we talked about Texas's, and we all agree, that's a huge win against Georgia. I mean, let's be clear, Texas didn't beat, you know, I'll call it a, a good team that won this, that won yesterday as well, Kentucky. They didn't beat Kentucky. They beat Georgia. I mean, that's a major league win. I mean, Georgia was beating Alabama. I mean, Georgia, I'm going to say should have beaten Alabama, but Georgia easily could have beaten Alabama. So this is a major win. We obviously have talked about the LSU-UCF game. Let me ask you a question. Massey Peabody rankings come out for next year, next season. What are we going to do with a team like Notre Dame that always seems to not perform great in the big game? Or how about Michigan? I just saw something on Michigan, and I'm sure, Cade, you've seen this number. Jim Harbaugh against top 10 teams is 1-19. Oh, my God. One that's in nineteen. A, it's an amazing big, stat. It's an amazing stat. Example. Just just like we had when we were talking NFL the first half hour, I, I reported this stat. Kirk Cousins 
against winning teams, thank you for the Vikings losing, is 4-24 and in his career against winning teams. He's 4-24, and and Jim Harbaugh's 1-19 against top 10 teams. Is there anything a rating system, first of all, did any other games catch your eye? And second, is there anything a rating system can do to take this? Like Notre Dame always has, you know, I think they're 0 and 8 in bowl games. I mean, they're just they're underperforming in bowl games. Michigan doesn't seem to be doing well. Will that influence Massey Peabody at all, or your ranking system is built for a different purpose? Yeah, it doesn't directly. Though I can tell you that Rufus has been doing a little R and D just in the last few weeks on exactly that question. He has looked at it before. We've dug into it and and not been able to find evidence that some teams are. It's important how you perform against the top teams versus the average team in, 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 in really understanding how good you are. That's not a difference that we have found historically, but we're looking again because, you know, we, we get better at these things and data get better. So you might be able to uncover it. It's not something we've been able to see historically. Uh, so it's not going to be, an, it's not going to show up that way in our ranking. The, that, I mean, Notre Dame had a great season. They're a very good team there. We have them number nine, which is close to where we had them all year. It's just that they ran into an extraordinary Clemson team. Michigan, I think, is more difficult to understand. I mean, they, they dropped – they looked really bad in their Big Ten final against Ohio State. You could say that was a rivalry game. It was on, you know, the home field of, of Ohio State. But then they go in and look really miserable against Florida. Again, I don't put too much. It's a bowl game. It's It's – you know, who knows what their motivations were. But when you talk one and nineteen, the trouble is It's one and nine, by the way. I was corrected by Matt. It's only one and nine, sorry. Okay. One and nine is less ridiculous. That it is a lot less ridiculous. And you also gotta I mean, you're playing you're supposed to lose against top ten teams. You know, a lot a lot of those seasons they were underdogs. It's different than the Kirk Cousins stat that you gave, which is five hundred teams, you know, just winning teams. Yeah. Um so it's not quite as egregious. I mostly think the Harbaugh thing is overdone. He is. We know that he's a great coach. He's been a great coach for at multiple programs, multiple leagues. And so I think that's a little bit overdone, especially when we talk about it. Who, I mean, do you really care about how much they, how well they played against Florida in the bowl game? I guess you do. We don't care that much. Um, so I'm not short Harbaugh yet. I think that people need to hang in there and not get too worked up about it. The thing about Harbaugh, he came he the first year at Michigan, he had this loaded roster. He had nothing to do with. He arrived with this loaded roster, had a great first season, got expectations too high, which are already ridiculously high. And then he had to go back and rebuild the program for a few years. And that takes a while. It takes a it takes a long time actually. Uh, Cade, can you kind of tear up the college system right now in terms of just even this this year? So at the top we have Alabama. Do they have company? Is do you put Clemson in exactly their same group, or or you put them one notch below? And then who would who would who would go in these tiers? So in in stepping you know trying to get step back a little bit from this this season, um, there's no question that Clemson's in the same company. And they have been for a number of years now, and, and each year they stay there, and each year they bring in another class. The more they solidify that position, and if we do want to talk about this season, we have them only about a one-point underdog in this game. The market is six, so we're considerably further towards Clemson than in the market. But we've had them real close all season long. We don't think the separation is as strong as people do. But there is a big drop-off this year. Obviously, it's apparent there's a big drop-off. But I think even stepping back, there's a pretty big drop-off after those two teams. But, you you know, Ohio State recruits as, almost as well as those guys. Year in, year out, they're bringing it does. the same ridiculous talent. They really do. They, they've just been dropping one 
unfathomable game a year that keeps them out of reaching those playoffs. So you go in and you lose to Purdue, and not only lose to them, but lose to them in an embarrassing fashion. So I don't know where that comes from. So, That's so a you, weird feature of their program. So you would put Ohio State in the same league, at least recruiting-wise, and I, I agree with that. I've been, and as you know, I've been looking at the recruiting data. They look to be in the same league as Alabama. And actually, by my reference, Ohio and, and Alabama are in a notch better than Clemson in recruiting until last year. Last year, Clemson's year of recruiting was the, the equivalent of, of, any te- of any team in the country or any school in the country. But historically... So I do think, in, yeah, in recruiting, in terms of recruiting, Ohio State's up there with them, but they haven't been doing it on the field. They're definitely a category below because they've mm-hmm. not been getting it done on the field. And then I think you've got to drop another to another tier after that. And Oklahoma certainly has has you know claim to the next tier down. Georgia would have claim to the next tier down. Washington has been trying to get in there but hasn't yet shown it on the field. We keep on expecting them to. So... Um, it, you know, it's going to get a little hard to parse after that, Andy, but, you know, I, I would say Alabama and Clemson up top, Ohio State right in there, just below, and then mm-hmm. below that, Ohio, um, Georgia and Oklahoma. Michigan's been looking strong, obviously. There's a raft of SEC teams, especially SEC West teams, that don't get quite the respect they deserve because they get a lot of losses, but they get a lot of losses because of all the other SEC West teams they play. So... You know, Mississippi State's a strong team. Auburn's a strong team. And they don't look as good as they really are. Missouri, my God, Missouri is a surprisingly strong team. Now, none of these teams look that good in the bowls this year, so that well, Auburn looked really good. But Mississippi drops a game. Missouri drops a game. But in general, those are very, very strong teams that would perform really well outside of that schedule they play. Well, okay, that was a question I was going to ask you. So you and Rufus obviously build Massey Peabody based on what everyone should do, which is out-of-sample prediction is one very good metric to use to build a forecasting system. Do you guys include the bowl game data? Does it actually, given you've talked about some teams seem to have a lack of motivation, if you were to add the bowl game data from this year to your data to predict the 2019 season, would it help? It, you know, it's a great question. Our, our editor at Washington Post asked us to he consider. We didn't. We haven't done it. He didn't assign it. But we we were talking about possibly doing that. Would would there be information in there? Would it be diagnostic of say next year's performance? We don't. We don't put the bowl games in there. And to try, and in, in case you want to talk about NFL, the same thing goes for like week seventeen NFL games. What do you do with week seventeen NFL games? And so we we play around a little bit with optimal weights on those things so what we what we usually end up seeing is that it's real hard to see uh, you don't you don't always want to include all the information because it doesn't it doesn't necessarily matter and bowls i think would fall in that category though we haven't dug into it explicitly well Cade, we only have about three minutes left we've been talking obviously for the last 20 something minutes about college football we'd love to get your take on the nfl uh anything catch your eye in the nfl this past weekend anything you're looking forward to this weekend coming up you know how are our eagles doing what do you think yeah what do you think about our nick Foles? <laughs> it was it's fun to see those guys slide in there, huh? And that's, you know, as, as kind of chalky and boring as the college football season has been this year, the NFL season has given, a lot, given us a lot, I think. And um, the, the race there at the end was just fantastic. So that's the biggest line on the board this week. And uh, we're, pretty, we're, we're pretty much aligned with the market. So we have Philadelphia five-and-a-half-point underdog. No, six-and-a-half-point underdog going into Chicago where the line is five-and-a-half. So we're a little bit more on the Bears, but mostly in line. But, you know, I don't think you count out Foles. But Chicago is one of these surprises of the season. We have them all the way up to number three now, one of the strongest teams. And so they're they're well-positioned to give the Rams a run. Um, 
and 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 the, and the Saints obviously in NFC. Um, Baltimore was you know something I really paid attention to the last two weekends. They had to they had to win some games and the Steelers lose the game. And it all worked out and just down to the wire and they managed to pull it off. Really excited about what they have going on. Chargers coming into Baltimore first game on Sunday, I believe, and we're we 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 don't believe in the. Ravens quite as much as the market does. We make them about a push against the Chargers, where the market is uh, is two and a half. Those are the Sunday games. Yeah, what's interesting about it, and we talked about this briefly in the first half hour, is that three of the four home teams, if you took away the classic two-and-a-half, three-point home field advantage, they'd actually be neutral or underdogs, which yeah. I, I find kind of interesting in the NFL. Uh, in the last yep. uh, 30 seconds or minute or so we have with you, um, I, should, I just forgot, Matt just reminded me, but the, NF, the uh, college football championship game will be on before we actually have our next show, because it's next Monday. Yeah. Who do you yeah. like in that game? I know you mentioned that Massey Peabody has Clemson and only about a one-point dog, but who do you personally think is going to win that game? Clemson. I'm all about Clemson. I'm hugely biased, though, because I want them to win. Um, we like them better, so for reputation purposes, but my personal preference is that they win, so I'm hugely biased. Don't trust it, except for the fact that we, we think it's a, it's a straight-up matchup. Alabama looked a little sketchy, a little bit messier than Clemson did in the semis. So I'm going with the Tigers. I'm agreeing. I well, like your pick. I'm, I'm picking the Clemson, too. And let me just say, by the way, if Clemson wins that game, you know, I, we could talk about legacy. Nick Saban's legacy is clear. No one's worried about Nick Saban and Mr. Six Championships and his legacy. But it would make them 2-2 two and two against Clemson in the last four years. So It, does, it surely makes the conversation much more interesting. It, it makes a lot more interesting. And we have to root for conversation. Right? Absolutely. Well, Kate, <laughs> thank you for thank, exactly, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Well, obviously, so we're hoping to see you back in the studio yeah. next week. And uh, enjoy the rest of your break. Take care, Kate. Thanks, man. Thanks, guys. Take care. Yeah, take care. So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We have Lynn Sanity coming in the next half hour, Jeremy Lynn. So please stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. Uh, we're here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, along with my co-host, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Well, Adi, we've always said that one of the greatest parts of our jobs here on Wharton Moneyball is that we get to talk to great guests. And... Uh, the next half hour or 20 minutes or so is no different. Uh, we're talking, we're, we're fortunate to have on Wharton Moneyball, Jeremy Lin, uh, current Atlanta Hawks guard. Uh, we know Jeremy is one of the great stories of the Ivy League, playing at Harvard before joining the NBA. He's played with a number of NBA teams, including my hometown, New York Knicks, which is where, you know, the explosion of You're Jeremy right. Lin happened. And so, Jeremy, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. Hey, thanks, guys. Good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you this morning? So I hear you're on the way to shoot around. How, how are things going this season? Why don't we just start with that? Because I'm just looking up your stats. You're shooting almost 49% from the field, thir- over 39% from three, 822 from the line. So I'm looking at this and I'm saying, Jeremy Lin's never been better. How are you feeling about the season with the Hawks? Um, yeah, things are definitely trending in an upward trajectory. I think for me um, and us, we've, I think we've won five out of the last seven. Um, but, you know, if you look at our record, um, it, you know, we went through a stretch where we were 6-23, and, and that was obviously a lot of growing pains. But we really started to 
hit our stride as of late. And then, yeah, like you said, I, I feel like for me, um, I've been able to play and shoot and, and do different things that, uh, at, a per- at percentages or at an efficiency that I've never really done in my career, which is, uh, you know, it's been cool for me to see just a lot of the work that we put in and the rehab coming back from the, you know, the knee injury and, and all the hamstring injuries from the year before, just really missing two years of basketball. Um, it's been great just to be back on the floor, to be healthy and be able to, you know, be a part of this team. Well, Jeremy, as you know, we're an analytics show. We that's why our name is Wharton Moneyball. Um, <laughs> how does? Can you tell us about the role that analytics has played in your career? Let me take it step by step. You just talked about injury. Let's talk about training. How much do you and then other players that you know of use analytics in training? Then we'll get to the on court stuff in a second. But why don't we just start with training? Coming back from injury, how much role does analytics play? Are you when you were getting back from injury? Is your body all hooked up with sensors and all that data is going into something? Are so you, you using could, the uh, yeah? Are, are you using Moneyball and analytics in your training? Could you talk about? Why don't we start with that? The whoop. Oh <laughs> man, things things have changed so much than when I first came in the league. Um, like you said, everything is becoming. Everything is trained towards data, quantification, um, all those different, like, you know, studying what happened with previous players, having a game plan. And I think there's – so analytics has played a huge role in in every component, you know. They give us analytics on sleep, nutrition, how that affects certain things, your percentages. And so there's always some type of, quant- you know, they're, they're always trying to quantify everything. And um, I think for me, um, the role that it's played or the way that I try to let analytics impact my training or the way I come back from the injury or even, the, you know, all my day-to-day decisions is I try to be aware of all the the stats. I try to be aware of all the science behind it and, and all the, the truth and the evidence behind it. Um, but then at the same time, I also try to make decisions that, are more day to day as well, and so it's not always practical that I can stick to the plan perfectly. Um, but at least I'm aware of what the plan should be and what the risks are, or how far off I'm deviating from what I should be doing. So, for example, with a knee injury, um, you may be coming back and you may have this protocol that you think, okay, this is the ideal game plan, but then all of a sudden, oh well, on on these certain days, you you couldn't get players to play again. And so all of a sudden it looks different. Um, like, okay, so you want to you want to play five on five today, but you're technically not. You, you probably shouldn't because you played yesterday. Now what do you do? But you can't play. You can't get enough players for the day after because that's just the way the rehab is. And on Saturday a lot of guys go out of town and whatnot. So then how do you like justify the, you know, those two things? So you know you should be doing, but what's practical? How much do you how much do you keep track of what I call the measurables? Like for example, you're known for example one of the famous stories in sports is with, in basketball is when between in the lockout off season when you went from the Golden State Warriors to the Knicks, you added 15 pounds of muscle, three and a half inches to your vertical, six inches to your running vertical, lateral quickness went up 32 percent, doubling the weight you can squat. How much do you? How much did you keep track of all of that? in those, let's call it Golden State Warriors to New York Knicks days, and then how much do you keep track of that today, personally, about your individual performance? Um, honestly, I, I, you know, a lot of those weightlifting metrics, I don't keep track. You know, when I was younger, it was like I was I was honestly chasing a lot of this. The, what I was chasing was a lot more strength. Um, at this point in my career, that's actually not what I need. Um, I'm, I have a lot of strength, especially relative to the guard position. What I'm chasing now more of is 
um, good movements, healthy movements, quicker movements. And so, yeah, like things like that, there will be certain tests that we have or certain measures. And so um, one of the things that we did at Fortius um, while I was rehabbing in Vancouver um, last year, we, we had these different tests, whether, you know, 3D runs or you're walking on a treadmill or you're doing all these different things and, and they're measuring how you're moving, how fast you're moving. You know, we had force plate jumps, all different types of force plate jumps. So now I can start to see what is the force that I'm able to produce. And then there's the whole, you know, force plate jump curve. And so you're able to look at your production value at each point of your jump. And so we were noticing at certain points, it was looking really good on my right leg, which is where I had the knee injury. But then at certain points, it started to get really weak and I had an in ability to really finish my jump on the right side and so all these different things you're constantly tracking these numbers and then you're 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 changing the rehab program to make sure okay he's good at loading on his right side but he's not good at finishing his jump so how do we change the exercises or how do we tailor the training so that i can get that last bit of you know strength and, and power and explosiveness coming out that jump so, so jeremy like that this is Adi Weiner. I, I mean, I've been, we've actually been talking about the training technology for a long time, and you sound like you're using maybe the Smart Attract system. Maybe that's what you're using. Um, my question is, there's a lot of measurements being taken, and you're getting lots and lots and lots of data, but ultimately, do you, what's your, your quick sense? Does it really work, or is it, is it overwhelming, or is it just something to do, and that you, could, you, you really could have, um, you wouldn't have necessarily benefited by having it as much as, as possibly people claim? I think that it's... Um you know, I think the ideal situation is to have all of this data being fed to somebody else that you trust. And mm-hmm. so whether it's your trainer or your strength coach or your your on-court trainer or, you know, physical trainer versus skills trainer, like whoever it is or even that team. So all the data is being fed to my team of people and they were processing through it. And then they would give me the basics and tell me, you know, they would sit me down every two weeks when we would test, and they'd be like, look, these are the results. This is where you're at. But they wouldn't give me all that extra, like, I don't want to say it's extra, but it's just I can't have too many numbers. And that's why right now, like, it's very targeted. I only think about a couple numbers, um, and those are, and, and that's the thing I've noticed with training and basketball and everything, really, is, like, if you try to focus on too many things, like, if I look at my, my analytics as a player, and I'm like, oh, this is below average. And I find everything that's below average. And I try to improve all of that at once. I'm not going to get anywhere. I'm going to get marginally better at everything, but significantly better at nothing. And so for me, it's really just finding two or three certain areas and attacking those areas for a, a, an extended stretch, whether it's two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, until you see major improvement and so that's kind of how we've tried to approach it and even from a basketball standpoint a lot of that is we look at our analytics but we look at okay these are like the most alarming areas that we really want to improve on interesting so here's a question that that uh, we as statisticians really would like to get your personal opinion on for many almost generation now we've been there's been an argument about whether or not there's hotness in basketball and sports in general momentum the idea that you can get hot and you play better for this this period of time and then of course it goes away for, for a long time the statistical community has argued that it doesn't actually exist it's an illusion that 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 isn't held out by the actual data there's been a revival of the idea in the statistical community of the hot hand 
But we'd like your opinion as a player. Does hotness exist? And I think your your time at the Knicks, of course, and Lynn Sanity was was a period of extended hotness. What do you think about that idea? It definitely exists, um, and that's the thing is like it's it's it without it without a question exists. Um, but a lot of it is there's so many things that can factor into it, and it's not just it's not so black and white. Like oh, he's hot, he's not. Um, there are definitely times and stretches where players their shots will just feel great, and then there will be stretches where for whatever reason it just doesn't. And you see you can see even in one of the greatest shooters of all time, Clay this season. You see him going through different seasons with his shot. Now, there could be external factors that are contributing to that, but we also know at the end of the day, he's one of the greatest shooters of all time, and he'll eventually, like the averages, the numbers, they'll always average themselves out. And so he'll get back up and he'll get his pursuit, and he has been shooting it better recently. Um, But there definitely exist times where it's like, hey, like I'm just locked in, and my motion, my shooting motion feels great, and whatever. And then there's always other things that could potentially impact it, right? So, like, a slight injury, or it might not even be a big injury. It might just be a nagging injury. Um, maybe your one of your ankles is bothering you, so you're subconsciously leaning towards compensating and leaning towards the other side. Or, you know, in my situation in New York, it was it was multiple factors outside of just my own game as well. It was, it was being able to come into the, you know, having an opportunity to play and being in a system that was tailored towards me, being with a coach who completely empowered me where I wasn't afraid to make mistakes. And when I did make mistakes, he, he really encouraged me and he really coached me and he taught me. And like, you know, having somebody like that to be able to play under and to be able to, you know, really be empowered and, and uh, you know, that contributed to it as well. So there's so many different things that are going into the final product. And so it's tough to say, oh, like, he had a hot hand or he didn't maybe he had a cold hand but because he was in an environment where his teammates were egging him on and his coaches were continuing to believe in him where like eventually after enough shots or enough tennis he started to you know make more and more and more and his confidence grew, grew, grew. so a lot of it could be mental as well right and so all that to say I definitely believe that there are stretches where you know people are, are hot and then their, their mind gets more and more confident and then all of a sudden you're, you're, you have someone who's in rhythm, who's comfortable, who isn't thinking, who isn't overanalyzing. You have someone who is just letting his instincts completely take over. And those are the most dangerous players. It's like when someone almost has nothing to lose and doesn't care if his shots go in or out and he's just out there firing, like that's extremely dangerous. You don't always want to play against those types of players. We're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. We're talking to Jeremy Lin of the Atlanta Hawks, and if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866 if you have a question for Jeremy. I wanted to ask you about the role now that analytics plays on the court. So one of the things that we hear about, the rumors we hear about, is the death of the mid-range game in the NBA today, that everything's either dunks or three-pointers. So how much, A, do you believe in that? And secondly, how much role does analytics play when you guys are, let's say, scouting against another team? Or, you know, there's 17 seconds left on the clock, you're down by one, your coach has to draw up a play. Does the coach say, wow, you know, analytics would say we should run the following play? How much are you seeing analytics used both in terms of, if you'd like, Scouting of other teams, etc. Mm, I think I think a lot of uh, teams. I mean, I think most of the teams uh, use analytics 
um, in, in their scouts. And so they do that for individual players, and they do that for teams. So individually, you know, who are their best players? What are their weaknesses? How can we play into that? And then as a team, like, what are they the worst at? What are they the best at? What do we need to be aware of? Like, do we start two big men, or do we start a stretch four and a big five? You know, how is their rebounding? What is, you know, things like, what is their pace of play? Um, and then the other thing is, like, I mean, I think that's what makes scouting so difficult is, like, it's you never – it's not like rock, paper, scissors where, like, it's very clear, like, every time rock goes against – you know, whatever, they're going to win. You know, like, it's not like that. It's, like, it all depends on that night, and that's what makes it so hard. So it's like, oh, man, this guy – um, this certain player struggles with shooting, so we should go under the pick and roll. But then, like, the flip side is that if you go under the pick and roll, you give them more space to head downhill on you. So it doesn't always work out what you think it, the way you think it will. So some players, it's like, even though you go under, you give them so much space and they're so exposed to coming downhill that now with all that space, they're driving down and you full head of steam and you have no chance of stopping it. And now all of a sudden, someone who can't shoot as well, you're going over the pick and roll. And so, like, it doesn't always work out the way you think, and so you have to be ready to make a lot of in-game adjustments, but it's a part of everything. And and we, I've been on teams where they're like, we literally don't want any mid-range jumpers. We only want three layups and dunks. Uh, I mean, free throws. Three, three layups and free throws. And, um, and so, like, you know, it definitely plays a role in every single organization, but it, how much it, you know, how much it impacts each team is a little bit differently. And then how much they allow the players to see is also different in everything. Some players feed you a major dose of analytics and tell you this, is this, 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 and this. Other teams don't really tell you. They just tell you, hey, this is our game plan. This is what we're going to do. And, and we're, you know, we're uh, not fully in tune with all the reasons why they came up with this coverage tonight, but we trust them that they made the right decision. Jeremy, we, I have another question for you uh, from your point of view as a player. One of the things that we that the analytics uh, have made extremely clear, although everyone has known this, in all sports uh, there's a home field advantage, and it's enormously pronounced in basketball, less so in baseball, but, and also very big in, 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 uh, in football. And there's a big debate about what causes it and why is it there. There's some indication that maybe it's the referees, but it's not enough to indicate to explain everything. Mostly, the players play better at, at home. As a as a professional basketball player, what is your belief of why the teams do so much better at home? Um, because I think the main reason has to be a combination of one, you're comfortable. Um, this is the court that you always play on, the hoop that you always play on. And excuse me, sorry. But the courts are the same. Um, I mean, am I getting this wrong? If it's in baseball, there's different fields, but the courts are the same dimensions. I mean, maybe because the colors are different, the the the, the environment, the lighting. Is that what you what you mean by comfortable on the court? Well, I think for me, like it definitely matters. Like uh, with the with the court, it, it definitely it definitely matters to me. Like if I'm comfortable, if I'm used to it, if I'm used to what's behind the hoop, like things like that. I mean, I think that's true for every player. Even even the rims, like getting used to the rims, every rim is a little bit different. Um, but I really think that, okay, so that's one in terms of, it's just you're comfortable. Like that's, you, when you go to a home game, there's a clear routine, right? Everything is exactly the way you want it to be. When you're on the road, like you have so much less control. You don't drive your own car, so you don't choose your time when you get there. You only have a couple bus times that you get to choose from. You don't know how far away the arena is. You don't know how bad that traffic would be that day. 
Also, you didn't sleep in your own bed the night before. You probably got in late um, because you played. You may have played the night before. Um, you're in a city, so you don't control. Your, you know, it's not the same food. You don't have the same chef. You don't have all the. There's so many factors, and and the, one of the biggest ones is sleeping in your own bed. Like sleeping in your own bed, being in your own house. Like you can control that. You have blackout shades. You take out all the sensory lighting. You have sleep. You know, sensory deprivation. You have all these di- different things. You have. Maybe some players have a routine where they they can have some salt bath the night before, but in on a hotel you might may not have a bathtub, and so there's so many things that affect your normal routine on the road, and then you get there and all of a sudden the weight room is access is different in every arena. So at home you have, clearly know what your weight room is going to look like. You have your same routine, but you get to the road and everything's a little bit different. Sometimes they don't have it. Sometimes the other team's like walking through before the game, and so your shooting times are all messed up, and so. All these small things, I feel like, add into it. And, like, all of a sudden, you're not as comfortable on the road and you're not as well-rested on the road just because the travel in the NBA is... Like, people forget just how much we travel. Well, let me ask you uh, a question about um, the role also of analytics, and then I know we have to let, you have to go in just a minute or two. Um, you could argue that analytics helps offensive players, but one of the things I always think back to the New York Knicks days was there wasn't a lot of tape on you back then. How much do you think, in some sense, what's the challenge in that defensive players now also know your tendencies? Do you think analytics in general has helped scoring more or defense more? Which way do you look at it? Hmm, that's a tough question. Um, I mean, honestly, I think it's going to be it's going to help scoring more. Um, the reason why is because, like, every basketball game, you end up with, like, 200 points scored total. Like, you know, I don't know what the actual number is, but, like, basically what I'm saying is offense, like, you're going to score the ball and you're going to score a lot of points. Even in an off game, you may score, like, 80 or 90 points. That's still a lot of points being scored. And so I think, like, the offense always has the, like, because the offense is always going to score, like, you do everything right, but when someone raises to shoot a shot, like, there's been so many times where you've defended Kevin Durant well, and then he just hits a tough shot, or he's the shot that you would want, you would give up. For example, a mid-range jumper. He's scored tens of thousands of points on mid-range jumpers, and, like, that's consistently a shot that you would want to give up versus a three or a layup or fouling him. And so I think just because offensive players right now, and now we're seeing more and more players with tremendous talent, we're seeing crazy guys like Porzingis and, and you know, Giannis and, uh, you know, all these guys who are 6'10", 7' and, like, play like guards. And, you know, then you have other players like Joel Embiid. And, and so we're seeing such offensive talent right now. Like, having analytics, I'm sure, helps, you know, and watching the Warriors play now, like, if the Warriors played back then, it would be ridiculous because there's the advantage of analytics and knowing what is a scientifically uh, better shot or better way to play. Um, so I think, like, all that to say, it's really tough to stop great offensive players. There's too many great offensive players, and I think I w- if I were to choose, I would say analytics would probably aided the offensive side more than the defensive side. The defensive side is more just a reaction to what's going on, but the offensive side and the whole way the game is being played is being changed because of analytics. 
Maybe one last question for you, Jeremy. And first of all, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. I want to ask you, who's a better basketball player? The 30-year-old Jeremy Lin, who's got wisdom, knows the game better, knows how to prepare better, knows how to kind of, knows a lot of players better, or the 23-year-old, let's assume, maybe more athletic Jeremy Lin, who's a better basketball player? And how do you, if the answer is the 30-year-old one, which at least the data seem to suggest you're playing as well as ever, what do you think has led to that? Um, honestly, like, you know, and I truly believe this, I do think I'm, I'm a better version now. And the reason why is because I'm just so much more well-rounded, um, than I was back then. Um, the other, I think the only difference is, the only difference is that, you know, well, I think there's many differences, but, um, one of the main ones is just, you know, I haven't been able to stay healthy when I had, uh, in Brooklyn, which would have been a very similar opportunity or role as I had in New York um, and in a system. Yeah, everything would have been pretty similar to New York, but I wasn't able to stay healthy during those two years in Brooklyn. Um, and then, like, you know, obviously all the other years besides that, the role has been uh, pretty drastically different than what it was in the usage rate and all those things. And so um, I do feel like I'm more well-rounded, um, whether it's shoot, you know, shooting percentages or, you know, things like that people used to knock me on a lot um, that now they, you know, you don't really hear those type of criticisms ever is like whether it's defense or driving left or, you know, yeah, shooting from the outside. Those are kind of my main three things that people would knock me a lot on when I was younger. And now people don't really knock me on those things, but um, I haven't really, yeah, I just, I just haven't um, been able to, you know, play to my full potential in my opinion. And so I, it's something that I'm continuing to try to work on is uh, getting better and better in that, in that in all these different areas and continue to show up small parts of my game. And uh, hopefully one day if I if I get, you know, a chance to have that same role, um, that I would do well in it. But, again, a lot of this stuff's not guaranteed. Um, and, honestly, a lot of this, you know, the trainers that I've had around me, specifically Josh Fan, who's been with me for the last seven, eight years, um, and he has poured through hours of film and countless hours on the gym, and, and things like that. Like we've worked so hard and it's been hard at times to, to work with work and be injured or work with work and not have things work out. And it seems like you're working and you're not seeing any results, but um, he's stuck by my side and, and, uh, and the Fortius guys um, also as well with the rehab. So um, yeah, I would choose my 30 year old self, but uh, again, like everything happens according to God's, God's grace and his timing. And the fact that I'm back on the court and being healthy, like that's, that's already so, that means so much to me. Well, Jeremy, we'd like to thank you as a Harvard guy, although I'm half Harvard, half Wharton. We'd like to thank you for joining us here in Wharton. Well, I'm a Yale guy, so I don't know. Yeah, sure so this we, have, so we well. have a lot of the Ivy League covered <laughs> here, but Jeremy, of course, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball, and good luck uh, with the rest of your season, and good luck with your continued recovery and play in the NBA. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Have a good morning. You too. Yeah. So, th- so we've been talking to Jeremy Lin from the Atlanta Hawks. We talked about all kinds of things. We talked about the hot hand, which he definitely believes exists. Well, he definitely believes in it, uh, and uh, and I think all the most players do. I mean, actually, you and I have played enough sports to, to believe in it as well. I absolutely <laughs> believe in it. I do. But what's interesting, I thought he was talking about, what was interesting the way he talked about it is, I actually do believe a lot of times it's just it's mental, but 
a lot of times it is physical, and it's about the mechanics of your shot. Yeah. And sometimes your just shot is just mechanically better. Which you know, it's which one comes first, the chicken or egg? You feel you feel good mentally because you shoot. Oh, you shoot better. Or you right. shoot better, and you feel better mentally. But the last question actually takes a uh, takes a position on a long a long standing debate about which is more important. Essentially, what you might call talent or hard work. When you you asked him to compare his twenty three year old self to his thirty year old self, and I think nobody can deny that when you're twenty three, you have physical advantages you don't have. No at doubt. Thirty and and uh, basically what he's saying is that the hard work is and the and what you you gain from hard work easily dwarfs what you have at, with natural talent and that you, that's why you see basketball players continue to get better and better and better until they're probably in, into their mid thirties when they, when the physical uh, t- uh, um, toll just you know right it just uh, but in his overcomes case, you. what's of course interesting is you know one of the things we talk about a lot on Wharton Moneyball is how do you measure age like in some sense you could say well Jeremy Lin's 30 that's a fact he's 30 that's years right. old but he hasn't played like there were two right. seasons he was injured now I understand mm-hmm. injuries are a form of age but he's not injured now he doesn't have the same mileage that a 30 or like compare him at 30 to let's I'm not comparing him to LeBron James in terms of his ability but LeBron James at 30 by the time LeBron James was 32 he had already played more LeBron's 33 now he already played more minutes than Michael Jordan in his entire career. So Jeremy Lin at 30 might have the tread and mileage on him of a 27-year-old. So he may be able to continue to improve for four or five more years. This is a is a is an area that I think is is becoming to be seen widely as as a valid uh, point. We're seeing it in tennis so that you take time off, you don't you don't get better, you don't get you don't lose nearly at the rate when uh, those who play all the time. Federer attributes that to his pl- his play. Remember, time five off. years he never won a major. Then he started taking said maybe I should play less tournaments, and all of a sudden he's winning majors again. And maybe one of the reasons why we're seeing um, baseball players potentially, you know, historically, you were at your prime at around 30 in, in baseball. And now you can't get them. No one wants to give them contracts because you have these youngsters who are, who are so good. Potentially, the, it's the toll of the seasons that are really not knocking those those players. And we have such great talent coming up, well-trained, able, and that potentially they were going to see some some push towards some some easier schedules for baseball players. Yeah, like as an example with Jeremy Lin, he's played 438 games in his career, which is the equivalent of 5.3 seasons. It's easy to argue if he were a 26-year-old who had played 5.3 seasons, you and I'd be saying, he's at his peak right now. Yep. So the fact that he's 30, it, it's, it would be interesting to compare, let's call it age curves versus, I know people have studied this a little bit, versus game played curve versus also minutes it's hard, per game. because it's also because of confounding and you get big problems. I know. Yeah. In his case also, he averages about 24 minutes a game, not 36 or 34, 33 to 36 like the top line starters, but it's not like he's playing four minutes a game either. He's right. playing half the time. So is also number of minutes per game. Either way, I thought his answer was fascinating and that he's still looking to improve. I also liked his answer in one dimension as well. He said, rather than incrementally improve lots of areas in a minor way, I'd rather excel and grow part of my game in large ways, even if it means not fixing a slight deficiency in another area, which is what we I call- wonder whether that's particular to basketball. Well, or that's a, a truth that, that, that pans out in lots of areas. Yeah, I mean, a good question about that is that, you know, you have to be good at something in the NBA. Like, for example, you could argue the coach, let's take an example, the coach of the Golden State Warriors, Steve Kerr. What was he really good at? Shooting threes. What's Kyle Korver really good at? Shooting, Shooting threes. threes. Yeah. You have a place in the NBA if you're really, really good at something. And 
you know, what Jeremy's saying is I'd rather be really good at something and maybe even play in those limited situations where I have freedom, but I'm really good at something. It, I think all of his answers were fascinating. It was And it was great, all the questions we asked him about, you know, from the player's perspective. So this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one quarter to go, so join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, along with my co-host and Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner, some combination of the two of us, our 830 calling guest, Cade Massey, and our colleague from the Statistics Department, Shane Jensen, her every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed down throughout the week. Thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, for that music coming back in, getting us excited here in the 2019 season of Wharton Moneyball. And of course, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. So if you want to join the conversation, like other people have called in today, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Adi, obviously we've spent a lot of the show talking about, we started with the NFL. We obviously College talked, basketball. College football. We talked to Kate a lot about college football. Of course, we were just on the phone with Jeremy Lin from the Atlanta Hawks and talking about NBA and the role that analytics plays there. But there is another major sport that you and I obviously are extraordinarily passionate about, probably the area that started both of us, our passion in analytics, uh, which is, of course, baseball. In my case, certainly I was uh, I started as a baseball fan before I ever became interested in all the other sports. Baseball was always my well, it, number it, one passion in baseball sport. Baseball has the role of statistics and analytics for the fan in baseball is clearly the most paramount, and it always has been. There's the most data, the most interesting, most to talk about. What's interesting is you're seeing in analytics is that the role of analytics in the other sports is probably having a bigger impact on the field than it ever had in baseball. If you think about analytics well, on the field. Well, baseball, you'd have to say in baseball, you'd have to say the shift has been one. The shift. You might have to say the the Weiner system of starting a reliever. The starting reliever is just just coming around just coming around recently. But the fundamental way the game is played has never been changed by analytics. When you're seeing that in basketball, it really it really has been changed. Fun, threes and dunks fundamentally, and in football it hasn't either. But it's it's starting to maybe change some of the decision. People making. going forward on fourth and one yeah. a lot more than you used to see in the past. Well, of course, one of the roles that analytics plays that we'd like to, I'd like to get your thoughts on now is in the Hall of Fame. So everyone, which is he, our favorite off-season pastime, it's our, it's our it's, well, it's one of my favorite pastimes. Period. Period. Because I love talking about the Hall of Fame, especially the different Hall of Fames. The baseball one is hard to get into. I wouldn't rank it. The, the NFL is definitely the hardest. There's no question getting into the NFL. Like when I tell you, how, sir, how many a year uh, get inducted? Basically three get into the NFL. Well, it's about the same rate as baseball. I, I, I know, but I'm just saying, if I told you certain NFL players, and like you're like. How can they not be in the yeah. Hall of Fame? Or, well, they didn't get into their sixth year of eligibility. You'd be like, how's How'd that, that possible? How did that happen? Okay. So I know you've been doing some looking at the current MLB class think potentially going into the Hall of Fame. What, right. what did you look at? What did you find? Okay, so there's a wonderful tracker, um, this uh, guy named Ryan Thibodeau. He puts together, and it's available online, called the Hall of Fame Tracker. And basically, there's there's the way it works for Hall of Fame um, entrance is a vote by by uh, baseball writers. And there's about 400 of them, and they, they have a ballot of 10, and you can you can select up to 10, and there are more candidates available. But Do you, you happen can, to know the data? How many candidates do does a typical writer put on their uh, ballot? Well, well it's, uh, typical is hard to define. The average 
averages around 8.8. 8.8. Uh, so um, there's probably most I think do 10, but there's some who do considerable fewer because if you don't feel that enough deserve it, then you then you can go fewer, and uh, and that's the system. Um, many of the of the writers actually make public what their ballots are, and there's a portion of them that keep them private till the very end. And when does the voting happen in the year? So it, so it's it started about uh, two, several weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, and it closes at the, I think the end of January, um, and then they announce it sometime a little bit later after that. So the trick is, and what's fun for for we statisticians is to track, and this is what what's what's online now the the public ballots and and kind of see how as you get more and more data and try to make forecasts about what would happen given the limited data set that you have. Now, it's not random samples, so it, it comes in an order, and there's a very big difference between the public ballots and the private ballots, particularly the private ballots really hate uh, Clemens and, and Bonds, the, the steroid users, the alleged steroid users. The public ballots tend to like them. So right now, the, if you look at the 140 or so ballots that have come in... That's a been, pretty big, so 30, 35%. We're yeah, getting there. a big sample. Um, and and uh, Where the, are Clemens and Clemens Bonds? Clemens and Bonds are over the 75% mark right now. They are. Um, the problem is, is that they aren't going to make it because the private ballots, which are about a third of the ballots, maybe a little less than a third of the ballots, they will give them about 50%. And so you need over 75% to make it. And so any um, any imbalance between the private and the public will, will sink them. So they're not going to make it this year. And I'm, I'm fairly, very, very confident. Can you remind us, do you know how many years there, it's now, it's now only 10 years you're allowed on the ballot. Right. So they're, know in, how... they're in, I think, their seventh year um, with both of them. So they're getting close. They're getting to... close. Now, what happens is, is as you get closer, you get better and better. So Bonds and Clemens are performing better than they ever done before. And, and the last year was better than the previous year. And so I do think, if I had to forecast into the future, that they will make it. And I think they're going to make it in their either their ninth or tenth year. It's just going to, the momentum is going to overwhelm. And how many, how many can you really say no to these guys in the final, in the final ballot? So I think they'll eventually make it, but it's not this year. So what we have this year is a couple of guys who were fighting for their lives. Ed, Edgar Martinez is in his last year of eligibility, and he looks like he's going to make it easily. Now, why? Let me ask you a question. So, what, what, how much? What does the data say right now? What percent of the so ballots Edgar, is he at? Uh, so he's at ninety-one point five, and again, most of so he'll probably over. He's his current state is overperforming what he'll finish, but he's got plenty of uh, of uh, well. Let's of room let's there. just do a little math here. Yeah. So he's sixteen percent, roughly above seventy-five percent, yeah. but on one third of the ballots, one third of the ballots, and there's a bias, and this is what from the statistical point of view is interesting. The public ballots are very different in, for some players um, than the private ballots, and Edgar Martinez tends to overperform in the pub in the public and uh, and underperform relative to the public with the private. It has to do with you know what what do you really think about a guy like Edgar Martinez, right? What kind of value does he bring? So um, if I do the math right, though, if he's sixteen percent above on a third, he can do basically eight percent below on two thirds. Yes. So as long as he gets two thirds of the votes of the remaining, he's basically going to win. And there's no reason to believe if he's at ninety-one percent of the public now, he's going to drop below two thirds of, of the year, one we haven't seen. Last yet. year he just missed. He was in the low seventies, and uh, and he had st- stiff competition. There were four that were elected, and five is essentially unheard of. So four were already elected last year, well, and you you typically don't get five. I mean, you, I don't think you've ever gotten five except for the very first year. So it's it's not, it's it's highly unusual that you'd get five. And so I, I predicted that he wasn't going to make it, well, even though he was polling over 75 until the very end. And he didn't make it. So Edgar is almost certainly going to make it. Well, let me it. ask you a question about that. Because I when do you believe when individual writers fill out their ballots, they're thinking about 
wow, I don't want this to be the year six people get into the Hall of so. Fame. I just think so there just isn't there much room on the ballot. There's only 10. You can only select 10. And a bunch of them are so obvious you can't say no to. So, for example, this year is the first year ballot for Mariana Rivera, and he is polling at 100%. Now, what do you think his final number will it be? It won't be, because there's a bunch of privates who are just going to screw, either because he's a Yankee or because he's a reliever or a closer, or they just feel it's not right that someone should get 100% and it's not, you know, Babe Ruth or Do you Ruth think he'll set Aaron. the record for uh, the highest the percentage? The highest percentage. Um, I think he will set the record. Do we I, do I happen to know? I know it's, is it above, like, for example, I believe, I don't know why this number sticks in my mind. I'm, maybe I'm thinking of the number of people in the House of Representatives. There's something like 440 voters somewhere in that neighborhood. I think it's over 400. Like, do we know how many votes out of 400 and... Like, how well, many votes would he need to get to okay, break well, the Okay, well, 437 is the record. Oh, so that's it's not Ken, far it's, from it's, the House of Ken, Representatives. Yes, it's not 438. Bad. 437 out of 440 is what Ken Griffey Jr. did. So will will Rivera beat that? And I would say the over-under on that is pretty tight. I think he's going to beat that. I think there'll be one to two um, uh, ballots that leave him off, but not three. So I'm get, guessing that he will break Griffey's record, but but I'm giving it a 50-50 or, or close to a 50-50. All right, so we've got, you think, Edgar Martinez, okay, so Mariano Mar- Mar- there are slam dunks. Now, what somewhat surprised me was Roy Halladay. He's polling higher than Martinez currently, which is in the mid nineties. So Roy Holiday, Roy, Roy Holiday is. An, I mean, God rest his soul. But maybe that's maybe that's what we're talking about. So Martinez is at ninety one point five on the public, and Roy Holiday's at ninety five. And I'm a little surprised by that. I thought this is a guy who would take a couple of years to get in. Um, what I mean. Is he a top? He's certainly not a tier one Hall of Famer, and I don't no. think he's a tier two. So he's a he's a kind of a mid tier three Hall of Famer, and I thought that's the kind of guy who needs to needs to sit it out for a few years. But that's not how the ballot seems to be going. Will the public override that? I don't think they can. It's too high. I think if, um, I think if you say the following: If was Roy Halladay ever the best pitcher in baseball? Yes. yes. Was he ever the best pitcher in baseball for at least a five year period? Yes. Yes, he was. All right. So if you use and did he have a very long career? Not no, really. not really. You know, I think he pitched till age thirty-five. Does that sound that roughly sounds right? roughly right? It, you know, and he wasn't and he wasn't so dominant over five years like Sandy Koufax. Even no, close. no, 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 you know, not he was, Koufax. Great. He, he was a candidate for the best pitcher for five years. He was never slam dunk best pitcher for five years by any stretch. So your view is what's interesting about that is obviously three. Do you think there's positional negative correlation. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the three players you say you're going to make it, we have Edgar Martinez, who was primarily a DH for his career. Yep, which is a strike against him, which is it, why they made him take so, take so long. We have, hitter. we have a reliever, the greatest reliever of all time. Right. Again, people there are people who don't like the closer. Right. And now we have a starting pitcher. Do you think, I know you're, you, I'm going to ask you who else you think might make it. Does it make it harder Let's imagine another closer was up there. Let's imagine another great DH. Let's imagine another great starting yeah. pitcher was there. Do you think there's negative correlation in some sense? Someone says, I'm going to pick Halliday or Person X. I'm going to pick Rivera or the other closer. Do you think that's great? Quite- I think there is correlation there. For example, Todd Helton is on the ballot this year, and he's polling in the teens. I mean, it's, it's just terrible. So, And I expected him to do better. He's at 19%. Uh, to Helton is an amazing player, right? Is he, is he, I think he's in the 
league of Edgar Martinez by any stretch. Purely was, on, I mean, purely they, on numbers. Also he was the at Rockies, Colorado. I know, that's... And that's something that people have a hard time dealing with, and that, that obviously cuts him back. Uh, but, but he's polling very low in, on his first year. But just to wrap the conversation up, and from you and I, both as Yankee fans, Moose, Mike Messina is heading towards his, the end of his... his uh, this his, is year 10. This is not year 10. I think he's at year 7 or year 8. He's got a couple years to go, but he's been polling better and better every year, and this is the year he looks like he might make it. He's at 82.3. Now, he typically... Um, the difference between his 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 uh, public ballot and his final percentages has averaged around 7%. So he's right so on the knife edge. He's right on the edge. So the question is, will he make it or not? And I'm actually predicting that he won't, only because I'm making the argument that four is an unlikely year. Three is, is more typical. But why would that... Why? So let me ask you a question. Is your... Is is your statement, which is true? It's a factually sta- it's a factual statement. Does it vo- rule against releasing information along the process? Because right now, if I'm a voter and I haven't voted yet, if I didn't know that there were three guys that were looking like it, I would vote for Messina because I think he deserves it. But now you're saying the revealing of information yep. may hurt Mike Messina. I just want to make clear: is that what you're saying? Uh, that's not exactly what I'm saying, but I think you're right, and that's something to think about. That if I'm a, a, a voter who hasn't yet placed his ballot, I'm going to be affected by that information. I think you would be. What more I was thinking from the Bayesian perspective: if I have to forecast what's going to happen, I want to shrink back towards the common numbers in a, in a given year, which is what I did last year. Edgar Martinez was looking like he was going to. Make Make it through the public ballots, but he didn't, and he wasn't even that close. And that was the argument that 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 five is just so unlikely. Well, I was going to ask you. That's by the way, just so people know, Adi mentioned this a little bit off air. Shame, shame, Adi. But Sorry. I, but this was the statistical question I thought of at the time, and now I've rethought of it again. What do you shrink towards? Like one way to say is I'm going to shrink Edgar Martinez towards what he's been polling. Another is I'm going to use the aggregate number and shrink towards that. Well. Those could lead, sometimes those could lead to two different answers. They are. Or in this case, sorry, the Mike Messina numbers might say, well, if forget that I know nothing about the aggregate. Mike Messina, he's going to make it based on his historical public-private. Uh, but wait a second. Now that I bring in this auxiliary piece of information, which is the total number of people... Now I'm not so sure. How do you, th- as a statistician, how do you think about that? Because those could lead to one was he's just above the That's knife right. edge, the other he's just below. Well, this is the basic paradox. I mean, because if I only That's why I'm asking if you. I only saw the information about Messina, I'd say he'd make it and probably make it not handily, but it would be close, but in his favor. But uh, acting like a Bayesian and saying, given the fact that three others are going to make it for sure, they're better than he is in terms of the balloting. I don't say playing, but in terms of the balloting. So this means says to me that if he's going to make it, we're going to have to have four elected to the Hall of Fame, and that's unlikely. Not zero probability by any stretch. And that brings me down below the 50% mark. So I'm just looking, I'm taking all the available data. Wait, so that's, the part I, that's the part I wanted to bring up. What you're doing is you mean I don't get Audi to selectively put in the information? You mean i got to use all the information? That's the point and, and that's I'm trying the, to make. And that's exactly what people do, and they typically don't. They say, if I'm making a decision about Messina, why don't only the votes about Messina matter? And that the fact is, is they don't. They they do matter. And so, while I'm not saying Messina's out of it by any by any stretch i think that he's he's unlikely to make it that's that's all my so let me ask you one last statistical question um could we measure what i'll call the public information effect in other words let's imagine we went prior to when they made ballots public by the way i had never thought about this as a potential downside of what they yep. i like public 
But I might like this public at the end of the process, not during the process. This has to affect I think certain it does. people. I think it does. But I do think that Messina will make it next year. And next year, coming along the line, we have, we have another great Yankee who will make it slam dunk. But beyond that, I don't is think Jeter we have... Jeter next year? Jeter's next year. And I don't think we're going to see... There isn't another candidate who's also a slam dunk, which gives room for people like Messina, for, in particular, Kurt Schilling. He's been not... He's starting to move up to the border. Um, and I think he'll probably make it within a year or two. And then finally, we'll have room for, for Clemens and Bonds. I think they'll make it in their final season. I don't think you're going to see that before that. Well, Adi, it's great in the off season to talk about Major League Baseball and also to talk about some interesting statistical perspectives. But we're still in the NFL season, which means Moneyball matchup time. Moneyball matchups. I'm just, for a few extra seconds. I'm going to let that NFL music keep playing because everyone knows there's nothing greater than NFL playoff time. And a lot of people argue the first weekend. Well, people might argue the second weekend's better because it's still four games. But we got four games coming up this weekend, Adi. Yeah, we've got four week four games coming up. Let me just review to everyone what those games are. And Adi, here are the lines. So you got uh, which game has caught your eye? We have, as I mentioned before, we have Colts minus two uh, against the Texans. Again, the Texans are the home team in that game. So again, without the home field edge, they would be even or the underdog in that game. We've got the Cowboys at home against the Seahawks. The Cowboys minus one. Again, Cowboys are at home. So they would be the underdog in that game if it were on a neutral field. We've got the Ravens at home against the Chargers. Again, the Ravens are 10-6 and six against the 12-4 and four Chargers. We've got the Ravens at home, basically neutral on an even field. And then we've got the Bears, Eagles, Bear, Eagles at Bears, minus six. Any of those games catch your eye? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm taking the, I'm taking the points. So they're two, two, I'm taking the minus six on the Eagles. So you're ta- you believe the Eagles plus six? I believe in the Eagles, and, I, and I'm going to just reiterate the argument we made earlier. I believe in Foles. I think he is in the, his hot regime. Uh, the question is whether he'll leave his hot regime by next season. Um, but I think he's in his hot regime, and we should, we, should, we should bet on it. And I'll take the six. Does that mean I'm, would I go a straight up money line bet? No, I would go with the Bears. So what odds would, you need, what, what, what odds would I need to give you to take the Eagles on the money line? What odds? Probably two to one. So really, two to one. You would need two to one odds. Well, maybe a little less than yeah, but yeah, I think somewhere, so, somewhere, somewhere in that, in that range. range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, that's very. That interesting. corresponds to around minus six, I think. That cor- uh, maybe uh, yeah, that's yes, that would be yeah. The matter of fact, it almost be might be exactly two, yep. might be exactly two to one. Any other games you said that caught your eye? Well, I mean, not not particularly. I mean, the rest of them are pretty close. I mean, they're certainly within the the the, uh, the home field advantage, as you pointed out. I think that um, that the, that they almost look like equal teams going straight. Yeah. So the game that's caught my eye is the Chargers Ravens. Why is that? Well, Chargers are twelve and four. That's yeah. that's the reason. Yeah. Is that um, you know I, I again I've always been a huge Philip Rivers fan. Mm-hmm. The one year they finally have a reasonable defense, and they win a lot of games. They're in the same division as the number one team in football, or one of the top two teams, the Kansas City Chiefs. So they go twelve and four, same record as the Chiefs, and they actually end up lo- uh, lose, or maybe the Chiefs won one more. They end up losing the division, and so they end up as the five seed and having to play on the road. Also, I'm not as big a believer at, that people are in um, uh, the quarterback for the Ravens, yeah, Lamar Jackson that just came in. Um, you know, the guy can't really throw the football that well yet. He's he's improving, but he's pretty much a running quarterback. 
I don't think that's going to win in the playoffs. So I like the Chargers in this game, actually. I would agree. I I like like them, too. I like your story. I like It's a story. (laughs) It's a story. But I think I'm actually also surprised that a 12-4 Charger team, I understand just win-loss is not a sufficient statistic to summarize someone's strength. I'm actually surprised that the Chargers are even underdogs at all in the game. I'm I'm surprised that it's considered neutral on an even field. I just don't. What's the Ravens' record? The Ravens ended up ten and six. So the, yeah, you would argue the Chargers are the better team, but that is that stands to that's coming from this highly variable, limited set of information we get on NBA on NFL teams, with the exceptions of the strongest ones, which we know are better. Those top four that we mentioned, the ones in the next four, they're almost indistinguishable. Record be damned. So. This this so Matt Dach just put something up on the screen. I assume this is for this season. Matt it also says here the Ravens beat the Chargers twenty two to ten earlier in the season. So well, I make nothing of that. Nothing, nothing at all. Uh, no, essentially nothing. I mean, it, it it wraps into their record, obviously, but nothing in particular about that. Let me let me say what it does for me. The Chargers, you would agree, are known more primarily as an offensive team than a defensive team. You would agree with that. You're not an NFL expert, but I mean, yes, okay. Well, two weeks ago, thank you, Zach. Actually, Matt, that's very important. Two weeks ago, the game was. The thing that's interesting to me is the Chargers only put up 10 points. So that's starting to make me think that the Ravens' defense may be elite. And now maybe, you know, the the 22 to 10 suggests it's not so much that the Ravens are a much better team, but they can basically hold the Chargers to some small number of points. That could be interesting to me. That That's very interesting as well. What's also interesting about it is, do you put any value at all? There are. Maybe, this is the first time I remember this, but I haven't checked it every year. They're actually, of the 12 teams in the playoffs, five of their coaches have won the Super Bowl before. So, Sean Payton with the Saints, they won the Super Bowl. Belichick, I think, has won a couple a few. of them. He's won a few. John Harbaugh with the Ravens. Ravens won the Super Bowl. Pete Carroll with the Seahawks. And, of course, Doug Peterson with the Eagles. Do you put any value whatsoever on a coach? Well, for example, the Chargers coach. Let's take the Chargers-Ravens game for a second. It's a rookie head coach, Anthony Lynn. Zero and zero in the playoffs. Has never coached a playoff game before. John Harbaugh is 10-5 and in the playoffs. And by the way, has never gone to the postseason and not won at least playoff one playoff game. I don't put any value in it. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. I mean, none that's not already built into the 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 uh, plus minus. So, for example, I would put a lot of value in Belichick, but that's what that's wrapped into the the you know into the Patriots. I'm not going dif- to. You can't differentiate what Belichick brings to the team. It's not already there in the team. So I value a coach certainly, but I think it gets wrapped up into the you play really of the do. players, and and therefore, yeah, I think I think I think the system, and that of course is embodied by the coach, is in is is in, in, crucial to creating a, a so championship I, I, team. I, I but just, I don't differentiate that from the from what we measure on the field. So I just wanted to say, if the chalk plays out in the AFC, and it's Patriots at Chiefs, and the storyline is. Another time Andy Reid can't win the big one. <laughs> you're not putting any weight whatsoever. I just want to make sure you're I'm, clear. I'm not you're putting, not any, putting weight any weight on it. It's Belichick against Reid. No, it's the Chiefs versus the Patriots. Now, in that situation, I'm probably putting my money on the Chiefs this year. The Chiefs? Yes. If it goes to that, I'm putting my money on the Chiefs. Wow. Well, mm-hmm. that well, there you have it. 
That's that that's that's quite that's quite a statement. So how do you so let's just quickly small sample size. That's so, that's the reason why you you you're, so you're, you're, you're bitching at Andy Reid. How many how many times has he lost? He's eleven and thirteen in the playoffs. Okay, he's gone to the with the Eagles. He went to the NFC Championship game five times, four of them as the favorite and won one. That's why, by the way, people in Philadelphia are upset with Andy Reid. It's not so much you know you can go one and four in the championship game. But going one and three when you're the home field and favorite, favorite. Yep. that's where people have the well, issue. Well, it's still a small sample size. Yeah, it's still a small <laughs> sample size. Well, this has been the first show of 2019 of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I've been co-hosting this morning with my friend and colleague, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner. We've had two great guests. One is our co-host and our lead host, uh, Cade Massey. We also had Jeremy Lynn from the Atlanta Hawks. I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Datz, and our sound engineer and associate producer, Danielle Bruno, uh, some combination of my Myself, Adi, Shane, and Kate are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132. Please join us next week. Between now and then, a lot of NFL, a lot of other stuff. Enjoy your sports. See you next week on Wharton Moneyball. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.